Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. driver ah yeah cool and uh shower head big knife is that psycho okay dancing lady are, are those wolves dances with wolves they kind of look more like foxes or a hedgehog okay what's this uh a radio another wolf slash fox and lots of people radio fox group radio wolf bunch Radio Wolfgang. Radio Wolfgang emoji title. I love it. Smiley love heart eyes. Winky kiss. Hello, this is Radio Wicked. Yeah, we're back on air. The goes down, but we don't care. We're mobile now. We're everywhere. Yeah, Radio Wicked is back on air. I am already hating this. Just, just, <laughs> just so you know. Michael, why are we here? <laughs> well, first of all, where are we? <laughs> We're at the Natural History Museum, Ice Ring, because we don't know how to say no, Rick. That's our problem. I assumed yes. that you'd said yes. <laughs> well, that, that's the game they played, didn't they? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, played Rick's agreed to, to go yeah. ice skating. It's Rick's idea. Yeah. <laughs> Rick loves ice skating. Oh, I suppose I'll go along with it then. <laughs> and then, yeah, and here we are now, about to cause some serious damage. The, the, the point... And I use that term very loosely, <laughs> is that we're seeing how we would cope if the earth were to suddenly freeze over. Yeah. Um, and if it did... And we had ice skates to hand, yeah. obviously. Yeah. All we've got is, is basically ca- catastrophic climate change and a pair of ice skates. Mm. Can we survive? According to Old Norse folklore... A summer that isn't summer at all, when the snow fails to melt, will signal the end of the world. Well, the new discovery suggests that this myth is substantially correct. It's gone into them. They're all worked up today. We've found something extraordinary. Extraordinary and disturbing, that is. You recall what you said about how... Polar melting might disrupt the North Atlantic current. Yes. Well, I think it's happening. Meteorologists are at a loss to explain what is causing this weather and why. 
the impact of global warming will be somewhere between severe and catastrophic. You know, we're, we're, we're conducting a global geophysical experiment without really understanding the consequences or the parameters. There's a certain view that humans can sort of control their environment. So in the sense that we've already created the problem, we've produced all the carbon dioxide, well, then we'll just have another quick fix. I don't think that's a very sensible approach, either philosophically or practically. There are certain things that I think are going to be negative impacts of climate change that potentially we can do nothing about. But arguably what we can say is bad things will happen, but we can prevent the apocalypse. You heard it here first. We can prevent the apocalypse. That's good news. This is Science-ish with me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. Doctor, Hello. Lovely. So in this show, what we do is we take a, uh, a work of fiction, and then we look at the science within, and we ask three key questions about that science. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the day after tomorrow. Michael, I have seen the day after tomorrow. I watched it um, in the cinema. I didn't put myself through it again. I thought about it, but I didn't do it. Yeah, yeah, me too. I did think about it. I have seen it. I don't think I need to see it again. No, I mean, it, for anyone who hasn't seen it, well done. Uh, <laughs> keep the situation that way. It is absolutely gash. But the premise is interesting. So it's a cataclysmic climate change event and the whole world freezes over is it the whole world pretty much the whole world it feels freezes like over. time freezes over to be honest, <laughs> yeah, when you're watching it it's two hours but it feels like <laughs> about six um, and so this freezing event happens in like two days and uh to say that it's pandemonium is an understatement <laughs> it feels wildly unrealistic but maybe it's interesting that at that time when was when did it come out 2004 2004 that you know, someone made a film which is directly about climate change, even if the science is a little bit iffy. So the science is sketchy, but it's not ridiculously sketchy. I mean, it's not sort of, you know, making up the laws of physics most of the time. Mm. So there is some kind of reason to think that should things go really badly wrong, you might reach a tipping point where, you know, you, it's irreversible and you've got this catastrophic change. But it wouldn't happen over the course of two days. Certainly, that's that's much probably less it's... dramatic film, though, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> this is God, changing be, over a hundred years. Film, <laughs> can you imagine? So there is something to it, and, and lots of scientists have said we you know we might reach a tipping point where something irreversible happens, and we you know the, then there's obviously no going back because that's the definition of irreversible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> assuming that our listeners are absolute idiots, <laughs> assume that again. What do you mean by tipping point? So when something happens to the climate, so you've got a, a situation that arises where you know something switches off for instance so in this film it's a it's an ocean current switches off stops warming sort of half of the world uh, and that just then you know starts to freeze over and once it freezes over you're in the situation where you know things just get worse and worse so it's a like positive feedback and and there is a chance then that a tipping point could be reached one of these vital circulation mechanisms or whatever could switch off. Yeah, and they did consult a scientific advisor over this. And actually, we went to speak to him, a guy called Michael Molita. Are you there, Bart? Yes, I hear these tornadoes 
Can you tell me, first of all, how you came to be involved in the making of this film? Yeah, I was working for PricewaterhouseCoopers here in London, and I got a phone call from the screenwriter who said, you don't know me, but I was an undergraduate at Harvard when you were doing your postdoctoral fellowship, and my roommate at Harvard took your climate change course. So I'm working on the screenplay for this climate change disaster movie, and I called my old Harvard you know, roommate and said, who was that crazy guy that you took that climate change course from? Right? <laughs> right. So he gave me your name and I yeah. tracked you down. And so he said, yeah, we're going to make a, a, a big you know, Hollywood blockbuster type climate change disaster film. You know, would you be interested in helping us? And so what did you tell them? I mean, what did you say that you must do this, you mustn't do that? Or, or did you say, look, you know, these are the possibilities? Well, no, first of all, so he said, look, you know, we, we like the idea of an abrupt climate change scenario. And the director, Roland Emmerich, had taken an option on a book called The Coming Superstorm, which I never actually read, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually where a lot of this fictitious part of the story comes from. Uh, okay. but it's based on an abrupt climate change scenario. Yeah. So the screenwriter said to me, look, one of the things that we've decided, even though this is a blockbuster, so we're not necessarily going to keep to the rules of physics, but we want the basic idea, the mechanism by which the abrupt climate change scenario starts, we want that to be realistic. We don't want to make that up. But once that ticks in, we're going to just go crazy, right? And, and no yeah. rules are even going to hold us back, even things like physics, right? All right, yeah. I mean, yeah. Who wants to obey the laws of physics, right? This is Hollywood. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, uh, I, I pointed out lots of things like, um, well, there's a scene between Ian Holm, I think that's his name, the British actor playing yeah. the lead British scientist, and Dennis Quaid playing the American scientist. And Quaid's got his computer and he's got these super storms, right? And he's showing it to Ian Holm saying, look, oh, this is what we've modeled, right? Yeah. It's this vortex of air descending very, very rapidly and, you know, just super freezing everything. And I, I mentioned to the producer, writer, and director, guys, you know, if air is descending, there's some rules of physics here. It's going to heat up. Pressure's going to increase. It will, it will heat up, right? And, and um, they said, okay, we'll fix that, right? And so they changed the dialogue, and the dialogue now goes something like this. Jack, were you able to recreate the thermal cycle? Yes. The storm's rotation is pulling supercooled air all the way down from the upper troposphere. But shouldn't the air warm up before it reaches ground level? It should, but it doesn't. The air is descending too rapidly. <laughs> so that's the Hollywood. Yes. That's the Hollywoodization. That's yeah, how you get yeah. around the rules of physics in Hollywood. That's fantastic. Just move really fast, and you can get away with anything. Can I have a penguin? Can I have a penguin? Oh, I'd love a penguin. <laughs> That's basically the first thing you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's quite slippery. I mean, this is a total nightmare. That was a snazzy little pirouette. <laughs> yeah, holding on. It's amazing what you can do when you're holding on to the side. Is it worth making a film about climate change that is overblown and, and unrealistic if it sort of increases awareness of the potential 
problems of climate change. So it was certainly for Americans. So the interesting thing is they did some polls and studies after the film came out. It made people much more concerned about the climate, much more sort of realising that they needed to do something and politicians should act. Uh, but when they did the same studies in Germany, they found it made people less likely to believe in any of this sort of anthropogenic global warming. So so the Germans basically saw the film, saw how preposterous the whole thing was and thought, oh, well, it's probably a, a load of old shite then or shiter. And uh, the <laughs> <God>. <laughs> and uh, the Americans sometimes I forget that you're a polyglot. <laughs> <laughs> and the Americans just thought, oh no, we've got to suddenly take this seriously because look what's going to happen to New York. Yeah, and that that's a kind of quite neat encapsulation of the character of both nations. Yes, it's probably true. <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Germans fairly canny, Americans thick as shit. <laughs> without, without wishing to stereotype. <laughs> oh, not but, you at know, all. Th- these are actually published studies. But presumably part of that is that in Germany, they've been talking about climate change and adaptation and, and mitigation for, for a long time. And yeah. they're, they're a long way ahead in terms of like renewable energy and, yeah. and stuff like that. And in America... They're basically just not so mad much. up for just burning oil, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I think you probably hit the nail right on the head there. There is, you know, obviously Professor Michael. Woof, was it quite humbling for you as Doctor Michael to meet <laughs> Professor Michael? <laughs> Must have been tough. <laughs> we didn't discuss it, to be honest. I didn't let it. No come need. Up. No, no, it's just sort no. of. It's just there in the room, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, everyone it, knows. It's kind of interesting to talk to him because you know he was a, at the original like Kyoto Protocol negotiations and stuff twenty years ago. And so, you know, his view on Hollywood and, and getting involved with it was, well, you know, nothing else is working. Let's do that. And so first question, then question one of this show is, could this, what we see, that that event, that cataclysmic event in The Day After Tomorrow, could that ever happen? How many things in the in the film would you say are possible, realistic? I mean, is there any scope for saying something like this could happen, this abrupt climate change? Yeah, so maybe the one scenario that, at least the last time I looked at the literature, was the most robust is this idea that we could change the thermal haline circulation of the Atlantic, right? So you have places like Bermuda, you know, that have a, a tropical climate because you've got this warm water that originates in the tropics and gets moved up the western margin of the of the Atlantic, and then it, it makes its way up around Iceland. And by that time, two things have happened to it. It's become very, very cold. Uh, it's released all of its, its heat into the atmosphere in the form of steam, and it's become very salty. So it's cold and it's very heavy, and it sinks to the bottom. One mechanism by which you could uh, change this is if you delivered a lot of fresh water to the North Atlantic, right? you dilute that cold, salty water, and it wouldn't sink any, anymore. That's exactly what we're doing. So the runoff off of Greenland and the changes in the heating and the changes in precipitation from snow to, 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 to a lot more water, there's a lot more water as a result of climate change entering the North Atlantic, and it's diluting the North Atlantic thermal haline circulation. So the basic idea in the film, if you remember, there's a series of buoys across the Atlantic, mm. and, and they're measuring two things. They're, they're measuring temperature and they're measuring salinity. What are the odds of two boys failing? Remote. idea that we could disrupt the thermal haline circulation of the Atlantic 
and that would lead to a cooling event in both North America and Europe, that is entirely plausible. Of course, the film takes it uh, uh, a bit further than that. I think we're on the verge of a major climate shift. I guess that everyone sort of remembers from school the the greenhouse effect, but just give us a, a little pricey. We're releasing carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide from burning fossil fuels yeah. into the atmosphere. It sits in the atmosphere and actually it holds energy really well. So, so it kind of acts as a blanket around the Earth. Gradually, the temperature of the atmosphere increases. And this is a, a kind of positive feedback thing. So what happens is we're melting ice caps, for instance, and the ice caps are, are nice and white and they reflect a lot of the heat and sunlight back, the radiation back. And of course, the more they melt, the less they reflect back. So, so you get warmer and warmer. So you've got these various different sort of mechanisms that just mean we get this, you know, what's called runaway global warming. It just gets warmer and warmer and everything you do makes it more likely to get warmer. And then you've got this amazing problem that, that might happen. We're not really sure. None of this is, is you know, absolutely nailed down. But the clathrate gun hypothesis... Very, very good name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People we... should talk about that more often. Yeah, I think yeah. that I could grab some uh, newspaper inches. <laughs> so clathrates are these sort of methane compounds, and they're trapped in the permafrost uh, in, in the Arctic and in seabed as well. And uh, what happens is as the temperatures go up, they get released. Uh, all these methane molecules get out. And methane is like 25 times more potent as a greenhouse gas mm. than carbon dioxide. So it's like putting, you know, maybe 10 extra blankets around the earth. And so in effect, although the stuff that we see in, in the film is quite far-fetched and we're not going to get a sort of ice age in a day, there are possibilities that there could be rapid yeah, uh, changes. Yeah. And so it becomes really destabilised. So it's very hard to pin down, you know, you can't say this particular event was caused by climate change, but we're seeing more and more extreme weather events because of the rise in, in temperature. And that's one of the things that people really pick up on and say, oh, but you can't be sure and science should be telling you, you know, you can't believe the science because it's not definite and it's not proven. But actually, you've got to use a bit of common sense as well. You know full well if you're putting more water vapour, for instance, from the oceans into the atmosphere and it's all at a higher temperature, then you are going to be affecting the climate and you're going to be affecting the way weather circulates around the world. And I'm afraid you are going to be making extreme weather events. Yeah, there are obviously still uh, a lot of people in in the world who refuse to believe that human driven climate change is a is a thing. The fact is, you know, ninety seven percent of climate scientists agree that we are causing problems with our emissions of greenhouse gases that are changing the climate and warming the earth. You know, it's an overwhelming consensus, and so it doesn't matter in one sense whether that the public believes that or no. not. No, and, and the it, fact is they they don't. You know, so now the the latest poll which came out last month says that fewer than half the population of about 20 countries that were surveyed now consider global warming to be a serious problem. But that's just to do with the fact that they're being fed actually what I will call propaganda yeah. about, you know, other things that they should be more concerned about like, you know, fighting terrorism and things like that. So Yeah, which is entirely valid actually, but it's this but it's what it, suits I, the narratives of governments in yeah, some ways. Yeah, and isn't and it? And actually, it's perfectly possible to be worried about all of those things. But I guess the narrative suggests that actually you sort of need to pick your favourites and sort <laughs> yeah. of go, no, I'm, no, I'm, and it's terrorism for me. That's bad. Yeah. And maybe economic growth. I want to make yeah. sure that's sort of yeah. fine. I haven't really got room to care about climate no, change. No, I'm actually, only allowed to con be concerned about two things and uh, climate change is out. So this sort of leads on to, I think, question two, which is why is it? 
that people are still refusing to take heed of the the multiple warnings and scientific evidence that is out there. And I spoke to Professor Troy Campbell uh, at the University of Oregon about exactly that. So climate change is to some degree like any problem. And with any problem, you are going to react to it in one of two ways, fight or flight. And pretty much that's the response to any single problem. And what's happening with climate change is the type of information that we are getting about it is leading us to take flight instead of fight. And that flight can come in a straight up denial that there is a problem or in an inaction to deal with anything about it. And I think that one of the reasons that we aren't doing anything about climate change is that the communications and the information that we are hearing is incredibly dour, it's negative, it's apocalyptic, and that there really isn't a lot of hope and positivity and really any desirability in the communications that we are receiving such that the narrative about climate change just leads us to want to take flight from it, that we don't see a way that we can fight it in a way that is desirable or accomplishable. Is, is it a problem of comprehension for our minds as well? Are we unable to get our head around the scale of the problem? Yeah, so climate change is a difficult thing for humans in general because we are short-sighted, we tend to be selfish, and we tend to have fact-denying tendencies. So you have a problem that we just aren't well-equipped to solve. It's just not in line with how individual human beings are, you can argue, evolutionarily equipped to deal with problems. We're equipped to deal with problems that are small, short-term, and that there's sort of immediate feedback for. But I really think at the, at the heart of it, there's sort of three issues, and they're the three solution issues that uh, is what I call them. And one is solution aversion, one is the lack of solution pressure, and the other is the lack of solution efficacy. So we will often solve problems when the answer to that problem is something that we know will work, that we are pressured to go towards, and that the solution itself is not aversive with any other things that we have. And I think climate change for most people is a very, very low priority. Facts alone usually do not win the day. And so what we find in our studies is if we present climate change science to people and we present it with a solution that is in line with their political ideology, then they're actually more likely to believe in the science. Is the climate currently warming? No, and it hasn't been for around a decade and a half. The president, according to his spokesman, believes drastic changes to the environment pose a bigger threat in the daily lives of Americans than terrorism. I believe in climate change, and I believe it's a completely natural process. Now, you believe in um, carbon for climate change. Tell me where the evidence is. Well, there is a staggering amount of evidence, literally tens of thousands of scientific papers. If you are dismissing the great majority, and I'm talking over 99% of the world's climate scientists, and what they are saying about climate change, you have to have some pretty strong data in order to dismiss that. But what you have dismissed it with is data which has no source and which appears to be completely false. You'll have to do a lot better than that. 
I don't believe anything. I look at the evidence, and the evidence says that we did have warming. Yes, we have been in a long-term warming trend. The last 15 years, we haven't had no statistical warming. Um, and so I think that's a problem with this hypothesis. I, I believe that the hypothesis has been shown to be false. Yeah, okay, that's wrong. Do you, do you think that there's a problem in that there are lots of powerful lobby groups out there who people are probably quite dimly aware of. So in, in, in the UK, there's a big group uh, of climate change sceptics who essentially present the, the climate change issue as a debate. So you have sceptics versus believers, and so you end up with this this suggestion, I think, to the public that actually there's questions here over whether we should be doing anything. Let me speak to that in two ways. So one of them is sort of our unconscious irrationality, which is if we see two people debating on television, and even if one says they have 97, 99% of the scientists backing them, if we see a debate, we see it as, oh, it's probably 50-50. And that is very, very problematic. The other thing is for people in climate science. And so the word is seepage. And what seepage means is that we scientists are starting to adopt the language that has been used by the outside forces whose sole entire goal is to bring doubt. We should approach climate change with great skepticism. Climate change has been going on as long as the planet is here. And... The most alarmist things have said maybe three degrees centigrade in a hundred years. At the very most, one of those would come from man-made, be man-made. The sea level rises six inches. That's a big deal in the world. The Maldives might disappear or something. But, okay, we've got to learn to... We can't mitigate that. We can't stop it. We've just got to stop building vast houses on seashores. I mean, just in, in, in littered through uh, last minute of the show, just some of the sort of nonsense yeah. that you hear from climate skeptics, like, ah, we just need to stop building houses on seashores. <laughs> we can't stop that. Yes, we can yeah. stop that. Yeah, <laughs> actually, that's what we're trying to do. Just build a bit further inland and oh, yeah, for be, God's sake. be fine. I, I spoke to Troy a bit about the fact that climate deniers don't like to be called deniers because the word denier is sort of associated with holocaust deniers all oh, right and i think actually i they can't choose what they get no. called you're not allowed to be called a climate skeptic just because you want to i mean i'd push for sort of a climate idiot yeah um, yeah climate mor- get, he's a climate moron climate is the benefit of, um, of <laughs> well, the alliteration uh, being, yeah very i quite well. like yeah, the alliteration yeah, yeah. The thing with these climate <laughs> they know nothing about science. <laughs> so ideally, don't listen to them. A bit where Bellamy gets shut down now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, show me the evidence. Well, there's loads of evidence, and, and you none. have none. You have none. <laughs> so, yeah. The trouble is that all these people. It makes me people, sad. 
listening to that. Yeah, stuff. because all they need to do is keep their voices being heard. And you're kind of average members of the public just think, oh, there's a debate going on. Therefore, it's not settled. Yeah, therefore, I don't really need to weigh in. We'll just see what happens. And, and of course, just stopping and seeing what happens and not doing anything is all that, that you know, big oil, whatever, wants to achieve is just make sure there's no kind of impetus to, to actually change stuff. There's an amazing book called The Merchants of Doubt, which talks about how some people are hired to sow doubt into arguments. So this is how the tobacco industry kind of survived for so long, yeah. saying that, you know, it's not really causing a problem. And uh, and and they hired actually the same people to do the same thing with with climate stuff. So that, uh, that's the scary thing. It's I mean it's slightly depressing, but I think we can lighten the mood with our final question by thinking about how we can help our lovely planet out <laughs> and uh, what the sort of future of humankind might be. And so our final question is: What can we now all do to try and curb climate change? And that's a question that we put to all of our experts. First up is Professor Joanna Haig from the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. The obvious thing to do is stop emitting carbon dioxide. That's the cause of the problem and we've just got to, you know, stop it as soon as we possibly can. The amount of carbon dioxide we've emitted already will continue to warm the planet for at least 200 years. So it's um, a situation where we've got to do something quickly. Even if we stop emitting CO2 now, it'll take that length of time before the climate adapts. So looking into the future, uh, clearly we're not going to stop today. And so it's possible that we've got to try and use some what's called negative carbon technologies, which includes things like carbon sequestration, taking the carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it in some store somewhere in order to get back to a zero carbon base. We shall now hear a statement by Shi Tez Shit Martinez, representative of civil society. I learned from my father that all life is sacred. He showed me that every living thing is connected because we all draw life from the same earth and we all drink from the same waters. And it is our responsibility to respect and protect that which gives us life. So I began to, to look at the world around me and begin to learn about the issues that we are facing. And I saw that we were facing a crisis that was beginning to affect every living system on our planet. I saw that climate change was going to be the defining issue of our time. Seeing this world, seeing my world collapsing around me pushed me to action. So for the last nine years since I was six years old, I've been on the front lines of climate and environmental movements, standing up to fight for my future and for our planet. About a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, I received a script, or at least the outline of a script, about a film that they wanted me to comment on as a result of my role with The Day After Tomorrow. And it was a, <laughs> it was a story about, like, Terminator. People in the future send assassins back to this time to kill climate skeptics. <laughs> <laughs> If you're driving an internal combustion vehicle, you own an internal combustion vehicle, you might as well every morning when you wake up, walk out your front door out to the street and open your wallet and pour your cash onto the ground because that's what <laughs> you're doing, right? I mean, look, it, wonderful technology when it was invented, right? But in, in the 21st century, I mean, the thing is, you know, one, after you subtract the weight of the vehicle, it's like 1% or 2% efficient. In, ter- in converting the 
chemical energy and fuel, right, into mechanical energy, right? It's a piece of junk, yeah. right? So stop driving internal combustion vehicles. You want a car, get yourself a battery electric vehicle. Right, right? okay. Yeah. Okay. And, oh, and s- stop eating beef. I mean, really? the, the, the two stupidest pieces of technology on the planet are both hyper-inefficient conversion devices. One is your car. If it's an internal combustion, I don't care if you're burning biofuel, by the way. It's, it's, it's still a piece of garbage. Yeah. And the other ones are cows. I mean, <laughs> if I gave you 10,000 quid and said, come up with the, the most inefficient value-creating device on the planet, you couldn't, you couldn't cut, dream up a cow. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's not a naturally occurring thing. We've, we've genetically modified it, so it doesn't look like anything that ever existed in nature. And it converts a very valuable plant protein into animal protein in milk at a conversion rate that requires increasing amounts of capital, loss of topsoil, fertilizers, pesticides, fossil fuels. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. Stop driving internal combustion vehicles and stop eating beef. Oh, man, I'm just down again now. <laughs> well, the, the, the World Health Organization just a couple of weeks ago said, um, you know, processed meat is a level one carcinogen, so yeah. that should help you. Okay, yeah, I was thinking more bacon for that one, but, you know. Oh, and salmon actually are, are, are amazing. So salmon have a, you know, in terms of input-output, they're close to one-to-one, right, where cows are like 83-to-one. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So All right, I'm on uh, salmon. salmon. Just not farm salmon. They don't. They don't. They don't give you that uh, that super ratio. But if you like salmon, do they make? Does somebody make salmon uh, bacon? There's turkey bacon. I've, I've never heard of salmon that's bacon. Your, that's but your I'm business. Going to invent it right now. <laughs> that's your business opportunity right there. Yeah, salmon yeah, okay. bacon trademarked, patented, done. What an idea that is. I mean, you know, let's just stop there. That's Sorry, that makes the world a better place. Fish. Yeah. Let's get on salmon bacon. <laughs> well, I feel like we should be able to engineer something. Yeah, I'm on we it. Genetically engineer salmon to be a bit more bacony. <laughs> Put some pig genes into it. See how salmon. their ratio is after that. <laughs> but one to one is incredible. Yeah, yeah. That the the ultimate machine versus the cow, which does sound absolute dog shit didn't yeah it? i'd never really thought of cows as inefficient well, conversions terrible, of terrible terrible machines yeah so we we need to stop eating beef i had a steak last night <laughs> terrible <laughs> i had one in the <laughs> fridge yeah. and he was telling me that. that's all i could think about for the rest of the day and then uh, stop driving internal combustion yeah engine vehicles happen, well i mean it will it, it well, it, it will have to. It's just you can't afford them. They're really expensive. Yeah, but that—that that, I mean, that cost will obviously come down because the cost yeah, of technology always comes eventually down. after um, the world's frozen over. Yeah, and we're all ice skating everywhere. in two days. <laughs> oh, ice skating! Yeah, I mean, if uh, <laughs> is this when we do our so great? <laughs> do we tell people about this? <laughs> so, so, I mean, I don't really know why, but uh, Michael and I went to the Natural History Museum. Excellent. I mean, to say we went ice skating is overstating it hugely. Uh, we sort of we slid, we, we? we limped around, <laughs> moaning <laughs> quite a lot. Michael had a little sort of toy penguin that he was yeah. pushing around. Yeah, I got it off you, I believe. Well, I gave, I saw it and was like, "That's that's a bit, Michael." <laughs> gave it to you, and fair enough. You, you look fantastic with it. You look like but when the world freezes over, I reckon I'm going to be better off than you. If if we're confined to ice skates. I'm yeah, right. which, okay, which we won't be, but also, <laughs> I don't know, there's nothing about our trip that says you were better at ice skating than me. We were both I think awful. the video will tell you that. I said it at the time, I'll say it again. I made it all the way round without touching the sides. Yeah, only you did not you had do to, that. I was you were really leaning outside. on a penguin. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in my skill set. creepy bastard. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I've got my eye on something. Right. So are you going for it now, Rick? You're not even holding I haven't on actually, anymore. I've not held on for a while, but crucially, I'm, uh, I'm headed straight for the penguin. Yeah, go, go for the penguin. Love You're it. You're a bit tall for that one. I'll be the judge of that, mate. Yes, here we go. <laughs> That's much better. Yes. Can I hold on to the side and the penguin? Do right, you know what? I haven't touched the, Wait! the side for ages. I haven't touched the side for ages. I know. Wait, wait that's out of order. <laughs> what am I doing with my arms? I'm doing a bit of all. Look at this oh, now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hello. <laughs> yeah, fall over. So nearly <laughs> went there. Absolutely magical, magical uh, stuff from me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so that's glad we're thing, entertaining you. That's what you. I realised I was doing wrong before. I just wasn't doing the arms. Is that all it was, Rick? Yeah, you just, get the arms going. The arms. It's actually yeah. quite easy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, there we go. My feet hurt. Too easy. <laughs> I think we nailed that. So aside from stopping eating beef and farming cows, stopping using internal combustion engines and stopping burning fossil fuels... Are there other things that we could be doing in tandem with carrying on those things? So there are people who say we should be doing more sort of engineering solutions. So, you know, take on the, the technical issues. One idea is carbon capture and storage. So we can continue to produce these fossil fuel emissions, but we, we capture the gas and we pump it back underground to where we've taken the oil and gas from. So we so we put it back into those spaces that we've, we've left empty. It's a nice idea, but actually incredibly difficult to do. And nobody's really successful successfully done it yet yeah and or we could paint the world white i mean that's that's something that somebody suggested so the idea would be that you know we're losing the polar ice caps and they're reflecting power Uh, why not paint all the roads and rooftops white so that all of this energy from the sun or more of it gets reflected back and so we get less uh, sort of build-up of heat so that's one sort of geoengineering solution. Don't that, mind it. Yeah, no, I don't mind it. Right. It seems like a cheap and easy solution. Yeah. And apparently it's sort of equivalent to taking all the cars in the world off the road for 11 years. That's the amount of sort of global warming you'll save. Somebody else suggested building a giant mirror in space to uh, oh, yeah. re- reflect the sunlight. Vanity. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you reflect sunlight before it even gets to us. So you kind of reduce the amount of incident radiation on the Earth. Mm. Feels like a big project. Feels like Bruce Willis <laughs> needs to be involved with that kind of scale. Is it not a, um, a an interesting idea that we should be eating more like shellfish, like mussels as well? Because mussels are protein rich, so they'd be a good replacement for beef, for example. Yeah. And also, they're they're carbon sinks. Yes, yeah. So you can do that, but I mean, how you know how are you going to convince people to do that when people don't eat that much mussels? It's because they don't really want that much muscles, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing sentence. <laughs> People don't eat that much muscles. <laughs> or many muscles. I don't know. Would it no, be many muscles? Don't eat yeah. that much muscles. Yeah. Yeah, they might do in your circles, but not everybody. Well, thank you very much. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then let's have a look at our, our three questions. So our first question was, could this ever happen? So the sort of, you know, like two-day ice age that we saw in the day after tomorrow. Not a two-day. You can't do it in two days. But there is the possibility of a abrupt climate change scenarios. That is on the table. Yeah, the the Clathrite gun hypothesis. Yes, yeah, Clathrite guns. That's the thing that's going to stick in my Start mind. Start packing. Clathrite gun. <laughs> yeah. Have you got your Clathrite guns? <laughs> yeah, we're all right. Let's go. <laughs> Second question was, basically, why are we still not redoing really anything about it? And I guess there's a raft of answers, isn't there? One is that, 
we sort of see the debate as being fairly even. Yeah, there's this in, false in, balance. Yeah. You know, this idea that, that, oh, it's still not decided. It is decided. Yeah. And then the, the final question was, what can we be doing? Salmon bacon. Ah, uh, yes. Salmon bacon coming to shops near you. Like bacon, but fishier. <laughs> the thing that I would like for all scientists and anybody communicating is to pay more attention to the psychology of the communication. You know, we get our news through Facebook and we get our opinions through what stories people share and what people post online. So you yourself, you are, a, in a way, climate change communicator, anybody who's posting online or you have the potential to be. Educate yourself so you know better what you think you need to say in those situations. The interesting thing is, though, my, my daughters, I, I find they're much more environmentally aware, uh, this generation, than I, I think I some that. previous uh, generations. They, they, they do not dispute, for example, the science around climate change. Uh, no. they, they think it's uh, self-apparent that we've got a problem and that we yeah. should be doing something about yeah. it. I, I absolutely agree. Certainly the letters I get, they bring tears to the eyes yeah. from kids of all ages. Uh, and and the, the young people... They care. They know that this is the world that they're going to grow up in and they're going to spend the rest of their lives in. In my life, I have dreamt of seeing the great herds of wild animals, jungles and rainforests full of birds and butterflies. But now I wonder if they will even exist for my children to see. It's time to look to the skies for the solutions that we need because the future of energy is no longer down a hole. We need to reconnect with the earth and end this mindset that we have that we can take whatever we want without ever giving back or understanding the harm that we are doing to the planet. It's this mindset of destruction, of greed that is tearing apart our planet. And it's not going to be easy, but it is our responsibility. We owe it to future generations to be the leaders of today so that they can have a tomorrow. Thank you. You, you keep asking, you know, what should we do? Imagine I said to you, well, the neighborhood where you live in London, there's this very unusual gas. We don't actually know much about it. We don't even know where it's coming from. But we're quite certain that prolonged exposure to this gas could be very harmful to you and your family. So you've got a few options. One is you can spend 20,000 quid closing all your windows and, and, and wearing gas masks, right? Second is you can sell your house, but that's going to be a disaster because once everyone figures out there's a gas, you're going to get nothing for your house. And the third option is stop, stop smoking and eat a well-balanced diet, right? <laughs> that's, that's the issue, right? Mm. Everything we need to do to lower the risk of climate change is good for us anyway. That didn't come across in the movie, did it? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, for, uh, that's for the day that's after for, the day after tomorrow. Yeah, the day yeah. afterwards. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson. The researcher was Cormac McAuliffe. This episode featured Professor Michael Molitor, Professor Joanna Haig, and Professor Troy Campbell as professors. Special thanks to the Grantham Institute at Imperial College and the Swarovski Ice Rink at the Natural History Museum. The executive producers were Ellie Martino and Harry Watson. 
One day, for a laugh, we should get Michael to do the credits. <laughs> <laughs> when I've learned, you know, how to do it. From Not the many master. people is eating much muscles. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing how ineloquent you can be, isn't it? <laughs> Speak for yourself, mate. 